0: So, for now, I'm going to hand it over to Audrey Kuo.
1: Hi, folks. Uh, My name is Audrey Kuo. I use they, them pronouns. I'm going to go over some access information first so people might move in this time. There are four more seats in the front row. If anyone needs ASL interpretation, priority will be for them for these two seats. I have one question. We have three seats, four, we, we have four seats in the front row. We have four seats left in the front row. Do not take the one next to Melissa. They don't want to sit next to you. Um, and um, is there anyone standing right now who needs a seat? Okay okay, please come sit, and then three other people, you may sit as well, or y'all can rotate chairs and practice what sharing resources looks like in community. Um, additional access information. There is a bathroom. It is here in this back corner. There's a key. Jaden, would you like to model the key? Jaden is beautifully holding the key. It is gender neutral, single stall. <laughs> <coughs> you know, work. Um, please don't walk this way. Don't um, cross through the interpreter path, so if you need to go around that way or go through this side. um, And also, if we could practice only one person speaking at a time, that will help with interpretation with people being able to hear. Similarly, during the question and answer section, I will ask that you wait for the microphone so that people can hear you speaking through that. And speaking of the Q&A, and in general, there will be an audio recording, so if you ask a question during the Q&A and you do not want that recorded, just say so onto the onto, into the microphone, and then we'll cut it out during the editing. Um, and then in terms of intensity, this happens at a, a few different transformative justice spaces. If you think of like life events on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the most intense, we're gonna ask you not to go above a seven today. Um, and part of that is for your safety, for the safety of other folks here. We don't necessarily have the time to unpack and go through everything, so please don't go above a seven. Um, we, um, You are welcome to take photography. There have been some requests that you capture people's good angles, and Ra- Raquel would prefer not to be on social media, so you can take the panel this way. Are the interpreters okay with being in photos? Yes, and they, the lovely interpreters are also okay with photos. I am too. Um, my public Instagram is AudreyCo, <laughs> Uh <That's laughs> Also, um, one of the things that we're doing at the end of the event is plugging... Upcoming TJ events so if you know of any that are happening and you have my phone number you can text me about them great Thanks, okay, so I am so so excited about this book. Thank you all for being here on the panel Thank you for being here in the audience I think transformative justice in LA obviously has been happening for a long time since before this place was called Los Angeles but in the last decade I think there's been just this upsurge of people really burning out in our movement work or people just dropping out and you start seeing like where are my comrades right people are like I'm burned out I can't show up to spaces like someone who has more social capital than me harmed me and now I don't feel safe going anywhere when I came forward people are like this person is too important and um, I think especially in Los Angeles we see how celebrity culture bleeds into our movement even I mean like y'all here on this panel like y'all are like movement famous now and I Not to critique y'all, but I think the ways in which, you know, we have celebrities, and there's this idolization of people doing the work, and then this leads to two problems. One, where we're like, only these people with big names can do this work, and if one of them causes harm, we're like, we refuse to talk about it, or it makes us all feel like we can't do transformative justice if people don't know who we are. So this book is super practical. I think we know the why. Um, We're not talking about the why as much today of transformative justice, if you need that please read a different book and don't ask that question in this space. Uh, We'll talk about resources later. But I think what we need is the how, right? Like, we know that prisons aren't working. We know that the current hetero patriarchy, community laughing at me. White supremacy, capitalism, they're not serving our people. Ableism is not serving our people. And today, we're really getting to how there's a few more seats in the front, if you would like, if you want to come around. Um, so we need, to t- we need to talk about like how are we actually moving TJ forward, and this book is really doing that. Um, one of the other reasons I think transformative justice is super important in Los Angeles, we just put out the Downtown Women's Center's Needs Assessment this year, um, uh, this week, and we found that 60% of homeless women on Skid Row, have, or not just on Skid Row, but in Los Angeles, have experienced violence in the last year. And we also know that the vast majority of women in homelessness have experienced gender-based violence. And for many of them, that was actually the reason that led to their homelessness. And people of all genders can experience violence. If you look at the state of homelessness in Los Angeles, you can see what happens when the systems don't support us, when there aren't resources for survivors, and people just lose access to capitalism not that we want to access it anyway but there's so much need for these tools and I'm really really excited for our editors to be here to have two of the people who contributed to be here too and I know a lot of folks in this room know each other so this space tonight is really for us to share resources and to share information and I'm really grateful for everyone for being here and with that I'm going to introduce our editors. Egeris Dixon is an organizer, consultant, and political strategist with 20 years of experience working in racial justice, LGBTQ, anti-violence, transformative justice, and economic justice movements. She is the founding director of Vision Change Win Consulting, www.visionchangewin.com, where she partners with organizations to build their capacity and deepen the impact of their organizing strategies. From 2010 to 2013, Ejeris served... Oh, yes. From 2010 to 2013, Igeris served as deputy director at the New York City Anti-Violence Project, where she directed national, statewide, and local organizing, rapid response, education, and policy initiatives on hate violence, domestic violence, police violence, and sexual violence. From 2005 to 2010, Igeris worked as the founding program coordinator of the Safe Outside the System Collective at the Audrey Lord Project, where she worked on creating transformative justice strategies to address hate and police violence. Her essay, Building Community Safety, Practical Steps Toward Liberatory Transformation, is featured in the anthology, Who Do You Serve? Who Do You Protect? Police, Violence, and Resistance in the United States. Her writing and analysis have been featured in Truthout, The New York Times, Everyday Feminism, The Huffington Post, Spin Magazine, and CNN. You may clap now. (laughs) (laughs) Leah Lakshmi Pisna Samarasina is a disability and transformative justice movement worker, writer, poet, and teacher, the Lambda award-winning author of Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice, *Tonguebreaker*, Breaker, <coughs> Bridge of Flowers, Dirty River, Body Map, how many books do you have? No. And other books, oh, I only have like seven, I need to buy those, okay. And co-editor of The Revolution Starts at Home, Confronting Intimate Violence in Activist Communities. Her work has been shortlisted for the publishing triangle and pushcart prizes, a burger Tamil, Sri Lankan, Irish, Roma, non binary, disabled femme, raised in Worcester, Massachusetts. Wor- Worcester.
2: <laughs>
1: Was that better? Okay. Massachusetts? <laughs> she co founded Toronto's Asian Arts Freedom School and the cutie BIPOC performance troupe and tour Mangos with Chili. Since 2009, she has been a lead artist with the Disability Justice Performance Collective, Sins Invalid. Her work has been widely anthologized with recent pieces in Laura Hershey, An American Master, Pleasure Activism, Octavia's Brood, PBS NewsHour, Vice, Yes, Guernica, Poets.org, The Deaf Poets Society, Bitch, Guts, Self, Truth Out, and The Body is Not an Apology. She has an MFA from Mills College and is a Vona Fellow. She is also a Rust Belt poet, a femme over 40, a Sri Lankan with a white mom, an autistic kid who grew up, a, su- a survivor who is hard to kill. Clap.
2: Good job. Thanks, Audrey. You should come with us everywhere we go on tour. Thank you for being a really good master of—yeah, exactly, that, yeah. Hi, thank you all so much for coming here to celebrate the birth of this book and this organizing project. Um, you can clap for yourself again if you want to, mm-hmm. um, truly. Um, my name's Leah Lakshmi Piepchna Um I'm gonna start us off by, um, Jairus asked me to talk about like why this book and hold on, why this book, why now? So in three to five minutes, I'm gonna say why this book, why now? Or at least my part of it. Um, I wanted to start by sharing how I came to this thing that we now call transformative justice because I think origin stories are important. And I think it's important for me to name that I didn't come to this like so many of us. We didn't come to this because we thought it was just this abstract, nice idea. I came to this because I was a 21-year-old in a relationship with someone I loved who was a criminalized, non-binary, queer of color who had done time, who was my immigration sponsor, who was a survivor, who got physically violent. I couldn't go to the cops, and I also didn't think the cops would help. And the movement was like, mm, and so I got thrown into this. And my origin story of transformative justice is the stuff I made up on my own, and then a couple years down the gate were my best femme friends of color We did something that we didn't call a safety team, but they went with me to every public event that he might be at, and they would walk in and see if he was there, and then go back and be like, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to ask him to leave? Do you want us to ask him to stay away? Do you want to leave? What do you want to do? I think it's really important to say that this isn't something that you have to go to PhD school to do, that before there was the word transformative justice, right, like, Black, indigenous, POC, disabled, sex working, trans, femme, poor, like all kinds of people have just been inventing solutions to survive without the police or prisons for as long as we've had to be resisting police and prisons, right? Um, And part of my work as things evolved with this, you know, magnificent experiment we call transformative justice was um, with Ching Yi Chen and Jadulani. we were all cranky Asian survivors and we were like, we should do a zine and we did the zine and then the zine became very large and then we were like, we need to get someone to publish this and it became this book called The Revolution Starts at Home, um, Confronting Intimate Violence in Activist Communities and then because feminists of color publishing is what it is, it went out of print because our press went down and then for me, what happened was that AK Press put it back in print in 2012, 13, something like that. And we all started getting messages from people being like, we're so glad it's back. There's nothing out there. Like, I got an email from Bangladesh, from this community, had translated into Bangla. And I was so moved by that. And I also was like, we started working on this 15 years ago, 11 years ago. And it's not right that there's one book that people know. And also... It's such an important book, I hope, and also when people would write me and be like, hey, you know, I'm in a situation. I'm trying to do community accountability. What do you suggest? I'd be like, here's these 12 blog posts. But I also know that blog posts are really important and then if you're not there in that moment on Facebook where they're passed around, you're looking and you can't find it. Um, I think I've got two more minutes. I'm gonna keep, keep this quick. So at the same time, you know, t- transformative justice is so much more commonly talked about than I ever would have believed possible 20 years ago. And one thing that we both talked about a lot when we were talking about the origins of this book was that we're so happy that more people think that there is a way of doing this work. And that also, I know that, you know, speaking for myself, I think for you too, I, something I say a lot is like there's that meme that's going around that says things like strong communities make the police obsolete. And I was like, that is so true. And also, yeah, tell me how, you know, like that's really cute. And I would see people being like, okay, but really though, how do we do it? And for me as a very no bullshit, allergic to bullshit kind of person, I was like, I don't want us to do this work in a way that sells survivors a bill of goods that makes it out like, oh, you just love each other and it's fine. So very quickly, I want to say why this book, why now? Because we need stories of things that worked because there are some things that are working, because we need concrete tools that we can take home so that we can experiment with them and build our own. And most of all, because we are living in active fascism in a particular way right now that is not getting better and that we really, really need to be making the alternatives now and that don't shy away from the hard questions. And we're really hopeful that this book will be something that can be a toolkit that that can be useful to folks. That's my three to five minutes. Thank you, that's,
3: Ooh, that's a short chord, huh? All right. Mm-hmm. Well, so y'all should know this thing about me is I'm inherently clumsy. So if I still manage to either wrap this around me or trip on it, just, you know, cheer. Like that, I think that would be the best way to go. So my name's Egeris Dixon um, and I'm one of the co-editors and I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for your time. Like, I know that whatever you had to do to get here in the room, I'm grateful to, for, the, for the resources that you use to either share this book um, I re- or, or pay for this book, and I'm also grateful for the time that you spend reading it and hopefully putting it into practice. Um, I came to transformative justice because I was a, a young black queer trying to survive like many and I got a job at the Audrey Lord Project, and it was like, there, there's a longer title, but it was essentially, um, the Audrey Lord Project had a long history of doing work on police and state violence, but there was also um, a history of a lot of community members also experiencing violence. And so then what is the work to ensure that we are addressing homophobic and transphobic violence and also being in alignment with our politics? and And so, or the the longer title is like how do you support your friends, your chosen family, your loved ones, your community um, to stay alive? Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of how I came to this work, and um, I remember when Leah was working on Revit Home, and I'm what 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 I'm here to talk about is kind of like what what is a TJ movement? Which I think is a question we can be in and it's, it's similar to the question of like, how do we define a movement anyway? But what I think is really important is when me and Leah started in this work in the late 90s and the early 2000s, we were at a different time. Mm-hmm. It was an underground, under-resourced movement. People who said the words abolition, people who said the words transformative justice, it was like, oh, okay. Strange people, okay, (laughs) adorable, okay, that small thing. And also that, and and when we do that to the work, we also like let go of the history, right? Like we are, many of us are coming from communities and people who have had to figure out safety outside of prisons and police for generations. And we have strategies, they may not be documented. You may need to sit with your grandma, you may need to sit down and and talk through this, but these are not new. They may not just be, they may just not be written down right? Or they may not have been written down by white people. So, um, and, and so the, the idea that this work is not there is, is is also something that I think is important to challenge. But we're in a different time now. We're in a time now where abolition and transformative justice have become buzzwords. And I think that that is both an opportunity and, and a challenge. The opportunity is, it's an incredible amount of people to bring into a movement of work, it's an incredible opportunity to build skill and to build network. And the challenge is we can lose all the depth and just use the words. And so what the goal of this book is to to hold the depth, right? Like I'm in room after room where people are saying, one day we will build these strategies, right? Or workshops, one day we will vision these strategies and we wanted a book to say, here you go. Right here's some stuff. Critique it, hate it, like refine it, add more. Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly complicated, and in some ways, almost like um, I don't know. Ideal idealistic is maybe the best. Like documenting a movement is not a process that is that happens within a book because there's a start and an end, right? So we're in the process of documenting and building and working in this movement with you, and I think. One of the most, the the other important thing for me to say is I think that transformative justice ensures that abolition doesn't leave survivors behind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's a way that we can talk about abolition and not talk about the, the, the real ways that many of us in our communities, in our families, in our organizing spaces are contending with violence. And if we're not simultaneously building up our our safety strategies while we do this work, then then we end up in a really challenging place. So I guess what I'm asking for y'all is to not treat this like a book and and to not participate in the power dynamic as us as quote unquote experts and you as quote unquote learners, but for us to, like we want to see this whole process as a movement building process. So I want to invite you into the movement-building process with us. I want you to invite you to deepen your practice, because I know that many of you are doing this work yourselves. And I want to invite us to continue to hold rigor and complexity, to continue to push ourselves and say, uh, to say what we can do, where we can grow, and where we can all learn. And, uh, and, and that's, and that's uh, kind of the movement-building part of this book. Uh, I want to kick it off to Amita Swadin. Um, who's going to speak about their piece in the book. Thank and you. thank you.
0: Great.
1: Um, Amita's a great human, also. Amitha Y. Swadin is an organizer, educator, storyteller, and strategist working to end interpersonal and institutional violence against young people. Their work stems from their experiences as a non-binary femme, queer woman of color, daughter of immigrants from India and years of childhood abuse by their parents, including eight years of rape by their father. They're the founding director of Mirror Memoirs, a national storytelling and organizing project uplifting the narratives, healing, and leadership of queer, transgender, non-binary, and intersex people of color who survive child sexual abuse as a strategy to end rape culture and other forms of oppression. I noticed that you have not mentioned your dog, Kinko, <laughs> who I will mention for you.
0: Audrey and I are obviously friends. Um, (laughs) Thank you for bringing Ginkgo into the room. Um, Two quick things, because I'm going to read a short excerpt from my piece. But uh, when I think about the invitation to contribute uh, to this book, I was really surprised to get the invitation because I haven't... I've been a youth organizer for a really long time, and I find that in the world of organizing, that is the... um, People often treat youth organizers like we're babysitters. Uh, And (laughs) actually, when, I mean, really, and when you think about work to end child sexual abuse, it actually happens most in schools, in community centers, in circles that are actually holding (laughs) young people because that's where child sexual abuse is happening, right? Is that's where the people who are directly experiencing it in real time are gathering and trying to figure out what to do about it in real time. Uh, So I was really honored to be asked to reflect on an experience that I had trying to figure out how to intervene in the life of my own sister so I have a sister who, is, uh, who was born the year that I turned 21, and we share the same father but have different mothers. And it's a longer story in the book of exactly how I reached out to her without calling the police, but uh, I'm going to start reading from the piece where I've already made contact and I'm waiting for her response. I will just say before I get into that, when I think about Uh, transformative justice the other two things that are really important to me at the core are relationships and consent so I talk in the book about my uh, mom and stepdad and grandma and sister who I grew up with's reaction to me reaching out to my half-sister and how they weren't really supportive and what that caused for me and it actually is Leah and Ejeris who are really close friends of mine who held me through that time so I feel like that's important to note as well like this essay wouldn't be in this book because unless we had those relationships because nobody knew this story right it wasn't in an organizing campaign Mm -hmm. they literally were like walking me through what to do or holding space for my feelings as it was happening so to Igeris's earlier point like this work is not to be found in dissertations or even sometimes in documented campaigns it's in the Um, ether of our relationships, right? We hold each other's stories and each other's practice. So if you want to do transformative justice work, start with your relationships and really strengthen them and and make sure you have good relationships uh, with yourself and with the people around you. And then the second thing is consent, right? So my sister is now 20, Uh, She was 12 at the time of the intervention that I wrote about and I just want you all to know that I wrote this in this anthology with her consent and her blessing. I would never have told the story publicly without her permission because it's just as much about her life as it is mine. Good, yeah, okay. Sulakshmi wrote back to me a month after I moved to Los Angeles and we began an infrequent correspondence through Facebook Messenger. Within six months of our first communication, she asked me to help her mother understand the severity of the violence she'd endured. As soon as Sulakshmi had received quote-unquote Amy's message, she'd disclosed to her mother that our father had abused her. Her mother confronted our father immediately and forced him to move out of the house, but Sulakshmi was worried that she would still have to see him as her mother chose to stay married to him. We spoke on the phone about what she wanted. She was clear even at the tender age of 12 that she didn't want police involvement. Her older brother had already been criminalized for marijuana possession and for supposedly making a teacher feel unsafe. The police had been terrible during that situation and she was inclined not to trust them. She was also clear that she didn't want our father locked in a cage. She just didn't want to see or talk to him again. Despite my clear commitment to prison abolition and transformative justice, I would be lying if I said I didn't feel a tinge of regret at a missed opportunity for revenge. But the bigger part of me wanted to spare her from state violence, from the harrowing experience of being put on trial as a young survivor. I told Sue Lakshmi about my own experience with mandated reporting and told her that I would help her the way she wanted to be helped. We set up another call for me to finally talk to my stepmother. Sulakshmi stayed on the phone while she and I spoke. It was surreal. I remember telling my stepmother, my father raped me. He beat and raped my mother for years. I heard from my cousin's wife that he also beat you when you were pregnant. She denied this and was incredulous about my recounting of my father's history, but I was relentless. Sulakshmi says he didn't rape her, but he did sexually assault her for years. I don't believe in calling the police, but what my father did is very, very illegal. Either you will guarantee that Sulakshmi will never have to see or talk to him again, or I will call the police. She promised, and eight years later, that promise still holds. It took two more years of regular phone and Skype conversations until I was ready to meet Sulakshmi in person. By then, she was 15. We spent hours talking on a bench in Central Park and at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We have so many things in common, things that I don't share with my sister with whom I grew up, and that Sulakshmi doesn't share with her brother. We're both poets, both activists, both really into school, both very extroverted people. We look like sisters, too. We have the same eyes, our father's eyes. Since that first meeting, Sulakshmi and I have spent at least a week together once a year. When she was 13, she told me she wanted to be a survivor activist like me, but she knew she'd have to wait until she turned 18 because of mandated reporting. When she finished high school, I flew her to California as a graduation present. Together, we shared our story at the first Mirror Memoirs conference for LGBTQI people of color who survived child sexual abuse, at the California Coalition Against Sexual Assaults statewide conference, and in the Living Bridges archive curated by fellow survivor activist Mia Mingus. We wanted people to understand transformative justice can be practiced even when intervening in the case of a minor who has been sexually assaulted or raped by a parent with whom they still live. When I think about my journey to word transformative justice, I think about all the steps I took away from my past without knowing where they would lead. Shortly after I moved to Los Angeles, my father was scheduled to be a keynote speaker at a New Age event on healing and mysticism. If you've seen Kumare or Wild Wild Country, you have some idea of the guru my father aspires to be. The event happened to be in front of the Queens Museum in New York City, where one of my best friends was the public events director. She told the events orga- event organizers she would pull their sound permit if they didn't pull my father from the lineup. Several of my friends attended the event to distribute flyers with my father's name on them, along with statistical information about the prevalence of child sexual abuse. I watched these events unfold from Los Angeles in awe. I'd never had any loved ones hold my father accountable. One of my friends, Bushra Rahman, even wrote a piece documenting the series of events for the Feminist Wire. Six years later, I was preparing to give a keynote in New Mexico to a statewide coalition of direct service providers working with survivors of intimate partner violence and sexual violence. The day before my talk, I received a Facebook message from a stranger, a young Sikh American man who said my father had been visiting his gurdwara, marketing himself as a spiritual healer. This young man's spidey sense had gone off when my father made plans to conduct a so-called healing ritual for his younger sister. With a little Googling, he found Bushra's article, printed it out, and used it to confront my father in front of his own father and sister. Do you know this woman? Is she your daughter? Did you do the things that she says you did? He told me that my father admitted to being my father, but denied his violence. I believe her, though, this young man replied. He convinced his parents to cancel the ritual. Then he printed out copies of the article and distributed them throughout the temple. Your father will never be welcome in our gurudwara again. Thank you for your work. Keep doing what you are doing, he wrote. Seeds bloom in the most unexpected ways. That's what transformative justice has taught me. If I would would have cooperated with those prosecutors all those years ago, my father would have been incarcerated and Lakshmi would never have been born. Being able to heal with her, to laugh with her, to resist with her has been such an unexpected gift. One I would not have known to dream of when I was 13. Every time we are together, the veils of time part for her I can be the adult I needed when I was younger. By reaching for her, I've simultaneously interrupted my father's cycle of harm and created an everlasting bond of healing, something no judge or jail could ever provide. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Amitha. Leah and Ajars, I did not thank you after speaking, but also thank you. Okay, thank you, everyone. Gratitude is important, it's part of the work. Um, I'm excited to announce our last speaker, reader. Raquel Lavinia has over 30 years of experience in activism and organizing. As an organizer, she focused on helping to build youth organizing as a discipline within a broader community organizing field. She served as a national program director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, supervising 20 staff in three cities the Executive Director of the Youth Empowerment Center, which housed five youth groups in Oakland, California, including Seoul, the School of Unity and Liberation, and as the Deputy Director of Social Justice Leadership, which supported groups in integrating analysis, organizing, and personal transformation. She is now Deputy Director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance with a focus on leadership development and organizational sustainability, where she's honored to contribute her skills and experience to a movement that centers dignity and justice.
4: Thank you. Ooh. Thank you all. Um, I was really struck too when you said um, how we've been doing this for a long time, like for generations. But even we've been doing it, and I—I I don't think I've been in a room this big, so I feel really honored uh, to be with you all. That you want, you are called by this book, and that you're called by all the things that you're doing every day to make transformative justice something that's like real and practiced, and hopefully replicable. Um, So I'm Raquel, and I'm actually representing Generation 5, which is an organization that doesn't exist anymore, which is fine. (laughs) That happens. Sometimes things end in order for other things to begin. Um, But the chapter that we have in this book is part of a larger handbook called um, Ending Child Sexual Abuse, and it's a guidebook for transformative justice practices. And we were writing it, I guess, in the, the first version of the handbook we wrote probably in the early 2000s, where people had been practicing um, close to Gen 5 and outside of Gen 5 and really trying to, like, what do you do, both as people who are survivors, as people who understand that S- child sexual abuse and if sexual abuse happens in really small secret places and you have to like shine a light on it but you also need to like have a community around it and that required organizing, it required strategy, it required guts, it required re- resilience, it required, you know, the sustainability and like the transformation of everybody involved. And at that time there were some experiments and they were really unsuccessful and really effing heartbreaking. Um, and so we were trying to write this book, and I don't know if everybody has anybody has ever written a book with, I think 17 people at the time. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> 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 um, so the first version came out, and it was kind of like, here's a theory. Here's a theory of what it could be like if you didn't use the system if you had community organizations supporting a family that's going through trying to undo child sexual abuse and end it, create safety for who's been harmed, get the person who's harming away, and then have accountability processes throughout. And um, what would it be like? How could you do that? So we were writing it kind of theoretically a long time ago. And so this chapter is an update where there's been like really beautiful things happening that are hard, really, really hard, like all these interventions around the country on things other than child sexual abuse. Um, and so RJ McConney, Chris Lambertos, Stacy Haynes, Nathaniel um, Shara, myself, we got together and we said, what's the new stuff that's out there? Like, what, How can we honor all the experiments that are no longer theory, but like practice, they're real, they're heartbreaking and some of them are really successful and maybe other people can repeat them because that's ultimately where transformative justice, the idea that you would not bring in the state um, and organizing, the idea that it could be systematic, a process where you could build accountability where the most amount of people can be involved and everyone could have power and dignity in in that situation could create something Practical, concrete, usable, and reusable, and change every time somebody uses it um, so i 'm going to read actually from our our piece, okay <laughs> um, I do want to say though that gen five focused on child sexual abuse because many of us were survivors, but we also thought if you focused on child sexual abuse, something that is so, is so. it happens in families, it happens in such secret, it creates such shame and such rage. If you could do, if you could have transformative justice practices using, with sexual child sexual abuse and intervene there and stop it and transform the situation, you may be able to do it at in other forms of abuse, other forms of sexual abuse, other forms of state violence. Mm-hmm. You would learn so much, right? That could maybe, you're doing it in this most, secret place that creates so much shame and rage, maybe it's, it's helpful for other places. Um, so that's why we, we really focus there. The other thing is that we're organizers. So many of us were, you know, at the same time, trying to dismantle systems of white supremacy and capitalism and all of that, and this work wasn't separate for us. It was like, actually, child sexual abuse happens at the intersection of all this oppression. And the fact that it happens and it keeps happening and it's secret and no one's stopping it helps keep those systems going. So we actually have to do both at the same time. So what is that? How do you dismantle systems at the same time you're, in, you're intervening on, on things that are happening within a family and within a community. And we think we can do that. We think that's possible to do, and we actually think that complexity is needed in order to tear both things down. Um, and then the final thing is that that led us to okay, so if we're going for transformative justice, th- the first and foremost is the person who's experiencing harm. The survivor is the most important person in the, in the whole thing and we also have to talk about transformation of the person who did harm. And this is a really hard line to hold, that if we're actually trying to dismantle systems that create oppression, we're also having to confront with a lot of hesitation, with a lot of fear, with a lot of rage, like the person who did harm also has dignity and humanity, and we have to hold that there's if they're willing, um, that transformation there is possible. Um, so that was one of the things that I think that, you know, Gen 5 kind of went into that was one of the hardest things and that's the piece that I'll read. How much time? Okay, so this is a, a couple of paragraphs from the R section. Accountability and transformation, our stories matter. The stories we tell and the stories we don't tell. What we keep inside hidden inside ourselves can shape our experience of the world and manage, okay, I'm going to tell you that I printed this out, but look. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like every other word I'm guessing right Do now. <laughs> Do you want a copy of the book? I, but I edited, so oh, it yeah, would be gotcha. shorter. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so we'll just see. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I just, I edited it, though. Thank you, though. Um Okay, our stories matter, the stories we tell and the stories we don't tell. What we keep hidden inside of ourselves can shape our experience of the world and managing these aspects of our history can limit our energy as well as our imagination about what's possible for the future. Choosing, um, yep, nope, not getting it. Okay, so I'm gonna move on. Um, Read the long one. No, I'll will re- try to read the last. I, want, I what I will say is that um, there's a list in there of like what you would need if you were if if somebody who did harm was willing to go through transformation. There's a list in there of like what you would need from that person, ongoing committed to for the rest of their lives. And some of the examples are stop like learn and feel empathy, make amends every day, engage in transformation, not just of the situation, but of the entire society and the systems of oppression, um, work to understand the root causes of their behavior. Um, so that's what we tried to provide, like in, in, in collaboration with everybody who was working on other aspects, we thought about contributing this. And then I'll just read the last paragraph um, of the book. So while the impulse to villainize or banish may be understandable, we have to engage, name the harm, and call upon this person's dignity in order to hold standards that support safety, connection, and dignity for everyone involved. For many people, the idea of giving attention to the healing needs of a person who has been sexually abusive is difficult to tolerate, to say the least, particularly when there are limited resources available for survivors already. It's important to center the needs of those most directly impacted by the harm in the situation. We also hold that recognizing and attending to the humanity of those who harm is a central aspect of transforming our families, communities, and the whole society. Seeing and dignifying the healing needs of people who who abuse also runs counter to the idea that some people out there are monsters who are expendable or needed to be weeded out because they're not us. By standing for everyone's need for healing, we challenge the dehumanizing logic that is central to systems of oppression, domination, and abuse. By standing for everyone's need for healing, we maintain our commitment to a vision of true liberation. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Raquel. Um, I'm going to just name one more time. We have two more seats in the front row. There's anyone standing right now who needs a seat and you're able to raise your hand if you could do so. So we have three seats available. If two more people wanna come forward, feel free to do so and take those seats. Great, Um, and we're gonna move into a quick panel conversation Then we'll have about 20 minutes for questions from the audience. Um, And as we do that, if you wanna just take a moment and just feel your body right now, I'm gonna have us take three breaths together, but especially if you, You know, hearing about violence, we may get tense, we may think about experiences that have come up in our own lives, so I'm just gonna invite you to find a comfortable position for your body. If it feels safe for you to close your eyes, you can do so. Otherwise, you can just cast your gaze downward if that feels good. I'm not gonna count the breaths, but just invite you to really breathe deep into your body, feel your lungs expand, and as you breathe out, feel free to make noise, let go of anything you don't need to hold on to. Um, If it helps you, you can put your feet on the floor as a reminder of your connection to this earth. And one more, and I'm going to invite everyone to make as much noise as they can on this exhale together. (sighs) Thanks, y'all, that sound is so lovely. Remember that we always have our breath to return to. Um, pulling facilitator privilege and I get to ask whatever questions I want. Um, Leah and I were texting like a couple days ago and we were saying the next title of a book should be just TJ is so much fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, you know, because the process can be, like processes can be really long. Sometimes they're five years. Sometimes you're just like, is anything happening? Like. <laughs> all we're doing is sending doodles into the ether forever <laughs> and no one can meet up. And we're like, is this, is it transformed? Did we do it? Um, so, and then I think Leah, another thing I remember, I think it was the body map tour at Q You talked, you were talking about love and you said, our people are used to taking like one onion and one potato and feeding a family for an entire week. Yeah. And so if we think like, this is how we hustle and especially as people of color, as disabled folks, as people who live already in the margins, we're so used to taking what little we have and making it work. But when we apply that to our own lives and we think about love or our desire for justice and we're like, I can just make do, that's one way that we're like not supporting our own liberation. So knowing how difficult it can be to dream and to expect better when we live in a world that doesn't allow for that, what allows you to keep going and to find the fun in TJ.
2: I have a thought. So, um, my essay in the book is called Cripping TJ, and it's about where the fun place, the amazing place where disability and transformative justice meet. Um, and one th- thing that I talk about is um, this process that I've been a part of, where everyone involved was a disabled or chronically ill, queer, trans, bi- like black or brown person, and we called it—I mean, we all were calling it the slowest process in the world because, you know, we didn't even send the doodles. We were like, "Sorry, I got evicted." "Sorry, I threw up." "Sorry, I'm—I ah, don't know." And I write about how like we all felt really guilty about that. We'd always be like, "I'm so sorry. It's been six months since I wrote back," and then. For me, my takeaway as someone who's in the process was that the person who had caused harm went from being really in complete denial and like this is bullshit to actually doing everything the survivor wanted. And as someone who's been in part of a lot of processes, I'm like, that doesn't happen that often. And it made me think about processes I've been a part of and I've witnessed where everyone's on speed mode, everyone's triggered, they hear that something happened, and they're like, we gotta do this in two weeks, and then everyone crashes. And I was like, so this is another one of the million reasons why, as disabled people, we're the leaders leaders we've been waiting for, is that we're not doing anything wrong by being slow, and that, of course, most of the time, someone going from complete denial to being accountable is going to take longer than two weeks, and it's going to need time to sit, and that moving on disabled time and slowness is a resource we have. And I think about all the people I know who are like, I want TJ, but it just looks, I mean, my partner's like, I always thought everyone knew TJ felt like a bunch of vomit and hell and like depression. I don't know. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, I love you, baby. But um, they're like, no offense. And I was like, no, no, it's real. And then I was like, whoa, this is, you know, People say sustainability a lot, and I think that as sick and disabled people, we're often the people who actually are trying to, you know, practice it mostly because we don't have any choice, right? Like, not that we're always super slow, but like that often we're like, yeah, you know, shit happens and like we can move at the pace of our bodies and let things unfold. And I was like, that's a resource. Like that within scarcity or what's seen as scarcity, that slow pacing actually allowed us to hang in there. And also, like, have dinners and potlucks and celebrate and pray and, like, cry and, like, not just be like, we have to be these TJ warriors for justice, but have no feelings, but to talk about it, you know? And yeah, that's what I got. And I love my partner, and I love that they're Pisces, and they're also like, <laughs> this fucking vomit hell thing called TJ, ah, I'm gonna fuck the police, but also. <laughs>
0: So there's a a lot of folks in the audience who are um, recorded storytellers in the Mirror Memoirs project, and um, that project gives me a lot of hope. So we're about to release our audio archive this spring into summer, and we have 58 stories from QTBIPOC survivors of childhood rape or sexual assault coming out across 15 states. The reason that that project gives me a lot of hope is, I mean, number one, we've been able to find a way to build a container that's like financially supported and that people want to help us get our stories out as, you know, as possibility models, I guess, that we can live through some fucked up shit and that we do and that we find ways to not only survive, but to to be our most authentic selves, to be our whole selves, and we do that in relationship, right? So the container is really about uh, f- kind of building on what you said, Leah. Like finding ways to actually gather, right? The the act of experience, the experience of going through, particularly childhood rape, is so isolating, right? To Raquel's point, it happens in secret pockets of society. And often you are assaulted alone if that is your experience. So to have a way to say, I am, um, you know, putting a stake in the ground in this room and whoever has had this experience and wants to not be alone in the experience anymore, you can come through the door And that people continue to do that, like not just the 60 storytellers who are recorded, but we've been using our audio archive to create healing circles and gathering spaces all over the country. And like up to 30 people come every time we do a healing circle. Uh, That's breaking isolation, right? And it's not always a terribly hard to listen to conversation because the audio clips that we play are simply the part of the interview where I ask everyone What's your vision for how humanity can end child sexual abuse? And although we have 60 different recorded answers, we have everybody said something, right? And the fact that we can just gather and like, allow our political imagination expand into that space where we can all grapple with that question is really exciting and hopeful to me. And also karaoke. So I do a lot of karaoke with my friends. We did karaoke last night. Eijeris and I have done a ton of karaoke. Audrey and I have done karaoke. Karaoke's fun, and actually, from a neurobiological perspective, I will just say there have been studies done that say that singing with other people heals your brain after trauma. So I'm just saying, it's not just fun, it's healing. Actually, there's one closer. Okay. Yeah. So I don't trip, right? Oh my, this chord.
3: This cord, that's it? Okay, let me just move up. Um, one of the things that was really important at my time when I was at the Audrey Lorde Project was, uh, was dance and song and chanting. And, um, and we would do these choreographed chants that we would, uh, w- we would do during pride marches and also as an outreach tactic. So I actually don't need to talk more about like what was fun, I'm gonna lead y'all in one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't need the mic, cause I, I don't need it. But um, so, call and response.
1: Can you actually use the mic as you're explaining, please? Okay. Call and response.
3: We don't need no cops. We don't need no, no cops. cops. Rolling down our blocks. Rolling down our blocks. We make the violence stop. We make the violence stop. Drop it like it's, it's hot. <laughs> drop it like it's hot. Like it's hot. I said, we don't need no cops. We don't need no cops. Rolling down our blocks. Rolling down our blocks. We make Stop. We make
1: a stop. Drop Drop that's what we did for fun. I just wanna appreciate the three people back there who yeah, did the tiniest it. possible drops, but you did it. It was like but I saw you. And you know, in the in the comfort of your own home, drop it as as low as you would like.
2: I feel like I got laid after one of those marches with that chant also. So that actually did help. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Leah.
4: Um, I'll tell a story from actually the organizing work. So I'm with NDWA, National Domestic Workers Alliance, and we have an affiliate in Chicago, and they have a hiring hall. So for both for day laborers and domestic workers, so nannies, house cleaners. Um, and the hiring hall had been everybody in there and mixed. And there had been a lot of tension rumbling for a really long time because patriarchy and gender roles just like – you know happened like organically who got to speak who got to eat who had to cook who had to clean who had to answer phones was all falling along gender lines Um, and something happened like an incident happened between two people that were a couple in the in the hiring hall and so everybody's going there mostly people are undocumented they're relying on this place for work and you know there's already these tensions and some things like Really interrupting and erupting in the in the in the um, hiring hall, and so the first response was ignore it because that's just something that's happening in between them. And a lot of the organizers we have been doing, you know, leadership development work with each other. We also know that, you know, you can only value like everybody has dignity, all work has value. Yet, you know, domestic work is low wage, high impact work, high value work, but it's really low wage. Um, So we've been working a lot on dignity and transformation of self, transformation of society. And so people said, well, no, let's not ignore this. Let's talk about this incident, let's create some safety, and let's also change this whole situation. Um, So why it led to fun was that there was actually a lot of really hard conversations that happened over a really long time, like pairs of people and groups of people and all of that. And now, every time new people come in, especially um, the male day laborers who are expecting it to run like every other part of their life, um, the men get together, cook a meal, sit down and say, okay, here's what's different here. (laughs) And we're trying to make something different here because we've upended everything and we know why and this isn't just a place that we come and get work this is a place where we represent what work could be like in a place where we all had dignity so if you come in here you're going to get a job but you're also going to have to change and this is how it is and they do that by cooking a meal and they all clean and then you know they go on to have meetings and the dynamic has changed and the gender roles are talked about openly people then discuss what they want to do and they revisit rules all the time and and norms in that place. And so the individual situation of harm was intervened on and then the entire um, hiring hall was shifted.
1: Awesome, thank you. Um, Okay, Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to ask one more question and then we'll open up for Um, Q&A. First I'm gonna tell a story. So (laughs) I think we talk a lot about hope and I'm gonna share the thing that gives me hope. Um, In doing transformative justice work over the past few years, I think, I always think like, oh, I do this work with my chosen family, right? I'm a queer person of color, I'm with my trans folks, and that's where I practice TJ. And when I was a kid, I'm like the baby across all my cousins, and my cousin Jeffrey was always a bully. Um, And he's changed a lot as he's grown up, but we've gotten closer over the the last few years. Um, And I remember, I think, two or three holiday seasons ago, he was upstairs talking to his girlfriend, and his voice started getting heated, and, like, I know his temper and his anger, and he's never violent, but he's often loud, and I remember thinking, like, I should go in and be like, hey, y'all need to take a break, and then I hesitated for a few minutes, and then his voice came back down, and I didn't go upstairs, and then the next morning, like, no one talked about it. Um, and then about a year later, we were talking, and I mentioned that um, as part of my last breakup—I'm single, by the way, um, and Polly—as um, part of my last breakup, my my ex and I asked folks to hold a circle because we were not able to communicate with each other anymore, and we needed folks to help—we pulled people from our pods, the BATGC pod mapping is in this book. Um, We pulled people from our pods to help hold space for us and to help us move through our breakup. And I told my cousin about that and he was like, I've never heard of anything like that before. And I was like, yes, relationships are held in community, right? It's not just two people. And he was just like, his mind was blown. And he was like, I want to think about this more. He's doing his own work as well. And he's like, uh, considering therapy, he's thinking about how anger has showed up, how we've learned it from our family dynamics. And Actually the last time we hung out, we talked about calling each other brothers instead of cousins. Uh, that's like where we're at now. And then I also saw his girlfriend and I uh, I was able to apologize to her. I was like, this incident happened. I know you were in our family's home. It probably felt like you were the only person there. And I wanna know that I heard this and I didn't intervene in that moment, but I've talked to Jeffrey about it and I wanted to tell you too, Like, if you ever feel like you need support, like. You, you are my family as well, and that is independent of, of my brother, right? We are also family. And I think the reason I bring it up is, like, we talk about transformative justice, and we talk about how it's vomit and tears and, like, building an airplane that you're flying while you're flying it, but it's also small moments. And so with this question, I'm going to ask you to, like, briefly say, like, what are the smallest ways you practice TJ that, like, people might not think of as transformative justice, but the really small interventions where it's like you see street harassment and you're like, hey, I don't like that. Or what are the small ways you've seen other people practice? And I know there's a ton of examples in the book, so maybe just one or two per person.
0: I mean, I can start and we'll just go down. Uh, I think the smallest but daily practice is with my partner who's here. Sorry, you're an introvert and I'm talking about you. But, um, you know, as Queer and trans and non binary people of color, like we experience so much structural violence, and then there's like different kinds of generational violence that we've each been through. And if we're going to actually live this politic of um, n- non abusive relationships, then we have to start to pay attention to the micro moments that lean. Uh, replicating family patterns, right? Or lean being reactive from state violence that we're experiencing or cultural violence that we're experiencing. So we do a lot of um, imago therapy, Gottman therapy, like we've been through the formal couples therapy, but we also do it on our own when there's not a therapist in the room. Just a lot of like, I'm really activated right now, I should say we have a rule that we don't yell at each other. Uh, It's like a deal breaker between us, so When we're upset, we say, you know, okay, I'm gonna try my best to repeat back to you what I hear you saying and just check if I got that right. And then also to apologize when I hurt you. Like that might not have been my intention, but it doesn't matter. Like I see that the hurt is real. And it's really hard work, to be honest, beyond any organizing work I've ever done with anyone else. Like it's it's the most intimate work and all the violence I experienced at the highest level at the 10 in my life was in my home and in my family. So it's with this person that I'm living with and creating my own intimacy with and kindredship, kinship with that it's the hardest, right? And so that's the most meaningful to me. And I, I bet that's true of a lot of people who experience violence in their families. Like it's the small Smallest moments with the people we're closest to where it
2: matters the most? So me and my partner both like being loud and we don't have the no yelling rule. Um, we're, both, we're both like light skin mixed race, Northeastern working class queers. So we're like, ah! And it's like, especially living in Seattle, it's like I need to yell or I'm gonna die. But my partner pioneered this, no, they, my partner created this term where they're like, hey buddy, I need you to take it down a quarter of a notch because we're both survivors, and we both get real loud, but then there's that moment where it's like, oh no. And it was a way that we were like, hey, it's not like, can you just talk like a white woman from New England? But it was like, you know, but it's like, buddy, can you take down a quarter of a notch? And I'm like, oh yeah, I can do that. You know, you respect my loud ass ways, but you just want me to chill, because we both grew up in like fucked up places. And I feel like that's just a phrase that like, you know, people talk about bystander intervention, and there's a lot of good stuff out there. But sometimes I'm like, in the moment, you know, I'm like, what do I say? Sometimes I'm like, hey, buddy, can you just take it down a quarter of a notch? Like the dude at the bus stop who's like maybe going off on somebody or something. And it's neutral, and it's just something that I'm holding in my head. That's a little thing.
3: This cord. Um So for me, the little thing is, uh, yeah, it, it's not walking away when I see violence on the street. Mm-hmm. So if I see whether it's two people, I think, in a relationship who are fighting or police violence, it's not walking away. Sometimes there are more options to intervene than others, but sometimes it's really as simple as like, when I, when I stand there, other people start to stand there, other people start to gather, and we can actually um, collaboratively intervene. So for me, the smallest thing is, and having been a person who's experienced violence on the street it, and, and, and knows what it feels like for people to walk past you, um, is to not walk past people, and and to be and to be there
4: in that. Thank you. Nice. Um, I guess a small way is that uh, when I'm in LA, I live on my 84-year-old mom's couch. and I help take care of her, um, and every day I'm here, my nephews are around. And as they were growing up, there was a lot of like, are you are you brainwashing us, T Raquel? Like there was a lot of you know. But now they're sixteen and nineteen and it's like resulted in these really amazing conversations whenever something happens. That's like, oh, okay, now we get, you know, and and you know, I mean their generation is actually I'm like, oh my God, it's so much better, um, especially around gender identity and sexuality and race. Like, it's just like, we're full human beings, so are other people, it's, it's really so different. Um, but every, probably week, you know, and especially right now when everything's so chaotic, we have really deep conversations with 16 year old, 19 year old, 84 year old, and then whatever their friends are around, and we'll do this for like a couple hours a night. Um, and obviously, most recently around Kobe Bryant, right? Because here's a whole here's a whole legacy, um, and uh, you know we're a Laker household. I left being I was I'm a lifelong NBA fan, and I left being a Laker fan because of Kobe. And we've and they're trying to be professional athletes, and so it's just been a really incredible thing to like wrestle with what is a whole person's life, um, and how do you honor. The things that are useful for them as athletes and really, really honor the harm they caused. Um, So I would just say that's a small but feels very big way.
1: Great, thank you all. So we're going to open up for Q&A. We have one more microphone with a slightly longer cord that Kavi will come around with. Please wait to use the microphone to ask your question, and then I'm going to ask that you do as I say, not as I do, and not tell a story before your question. And also remind you of the not going above a 7 in terms of intensity, just for the safety of other folks here and for you as well. Um, If you're sharing an incident, first try to keep it short, but also think about... um, not sharing, not violating someone else's confidentiality in your questions, if you might. And then, um, cool, if you wanna raise your hand, if you have a question, great. Sorry, folks, real quick, um, I need to have one mic because we have a okay. uh, an cool. So if we can share that one. Cool. Okay, cool. Just that part. Okay. And we'll have the first question from Lilac. Hey, folks, my name is Lilac Violet Maldonado, and um, I have a question for the
2: panelists here. I'd like to ask, um, after having a really intense community TJ discussion, what is your favorite way to do self-care in private and attune your spirit so that you feel at home in your body and safe after a really intense discussion? Thank
3: you.
0: Uh, the simplest thing for me is I um, like to submerge myself in hot water. So if I have access to a hot tub, that's my favorite, but that's very rare. It's usually just take
2: a hot bath or a hot shower. Somewhere between masturbation and weed and like going outside, to be honest. Oh. Uh, fried food.
3: Fried Fried food. <laughs> I was like, make some food and
4: share it. Maybe fry some food and share it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Um, In a political timbre where exploding and explosive temperament, how do you practice that kind of – how do you practice – not
0: reacting, can you give me some good techniques when people are being really ignorant in the dialogue
2: um, and they're the ones that are vocalizing most clearly, um, how do you practice that? And some examples would really help.
3: I don't know if it's always about not reacting is the first thing I would say. Um, And I think uh, so if we're talking about like uh, somebody who's escalating a conversation, I try, to, I try to match the energy that they're at and actually, and then s- lower it. So like speak lower, speak longer, speak slower, things like that. But I, I think it, it, it can depend so much around like, what's happening, what's the conversation? Are people using violent language? Are insults happening? So there's a lot of like contextualities that, that, um, that impact what's happening but but I I do think um, not reacting on someone else but I think you can have a reaction that is about boundary setting Mm -hmm. and you can have a reaction that is about um, pausing behaviors or I'm asking you not to do this I'm asking you to stop saying this I'm not going to continue to have this conversation with you that's that's kind of like in a more general sense things that I think of
2: Honestly, I've kind of reacted by being a hermit, you know, and being really, I think it's also for me about chronic illness, where I have limited energy, I really, it's really helped me be like, what, what are my, what's my spoons, what's my energy today, and will this help build my capacity or not? Is this something I have to speak to right now to, that will build something or protect me, or is this something that I can just be like, I'm going to pretend I didn't see that, you know? Like, I try and be really strategic with it, and... I am on the Aries cusp, so I am very reactive, (laughs) and I'm also a trauma survivor. So it's gonna sound corny, but I count to 10 sometimes, and then I just go, what's the best move? And I don't think I always make the right response, but I try and give myself the gift of space, to be like, maybe, I agree with the jurist. I think reaction doesn't have to be bad, but I'm, I'm, for me, I'm trying to be like, cause I used to be like, I have to speak to every single thing, and then I was like, I'm just wasting my time. I'd rather build with people, and if there's hard conversation to have happen there, with people I share something with, that's where I'm gonna put my energy. Anybody um,
4: else? The only thing I'd add is, if it's not about that person, but other people around. Like is there actually something more useful for everybody else that's in this room or in this space that's not, like not just about, you know, this one person? And if there is, then let's do that. You know, and that sometimes lowers the energy of that person or changes the dynamic entirely. Thank you. Hi, I'm Tasha. Um so a question for y'all. Um, do any of you feel like
2: that there's some people who we just got to leave behind? Like, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, do you really feel like there's anybody who's just, like, not really? Like, if you sat down with them and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, let's do this. Let's do it. And they're just like, you know what? No, like, no, you know, like, I just feel like sometimes there's some people who's, like, ideolo- ideologically that you're just, like, totally at a gulf and it's just, like, you can't even you know, you try to get on the bridge, and it's like, you know, the bridge is crumbling, and it's like, you're like, come on, get my hand, you know, like, whatever, like, you know, it's like, they're not, like, not redeemable, because, like, they're human, but it's just like, you know what, like, in the new world, like, y'all are gonna have to be, like, over there. Mm-hmm. What do y'all think? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> For me, I land in a place of, um It's I give myself permission to be compassionate and to humanize everyone, but to not want to be in relationship with everyone. Right? Like that's, and I think that's okay. And that has to be okay. So I haven't spoken to my father since I was 16. And he's had many, 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 I'm 41. So it's been a long time. And uh, I've had, he's had many opportunities to step into his accountability with support and with community and he's chosen not to. And to me, that's a choice then to not be in relationship with me, right? You're forfeiting that, that relationship. And I think that he deserves love and care and support, like a lot of perpetrators of child sexual abuse. He's also a survivor of child sexual abuse. So I think he deserves healing for what he's been through. And I'm not the one to give it to him. And I think that's okay. And I don't think that being committed to transformative justice means we have to know how to help absolutely every person. Like For me, that's just not what it's about.
2: Can I have one thing? Yeah, Yeah. I used to, I have this fantasy called Jerk Island, you know, where I was like, let's drop him on Jerk Island. And I was like, I think it works as a fantasy. But also, I think that question is really important because I think the one thing I've heard you speak a lot about is like, it's not like all hard, like it's, we don't want to like put We don't want to be like, some harm's worse than others, but like, there are people where I'm damn, that wasn't like, whoa, my bad, I did it once and I'm really sorry. It's like serial perpetration. And like, we give you a million chances. And like, fuck, you know, like, this is a lot. Um, So I think I just, I'm really grateful for the question, you know, and I feel like that's part of not pretending that it's easy. Just to kind of like segue on top of what, or add on top of what Amitha said, um, my parents are both also abusive, and I confronted them 22 years ago, which is half my life ago, and I found out that they're both starting to die recently. And so I've just, it's hard, and there's a lot I could say, but what I want to... share is that my friend Rory brought up this, my friend Rebel brought up this thing where I was like, where the fuck is the justice, you know? And then I was like, I'm never gonna get repair, I'm never gonna get reparations. And they said, yeah, but you know, your life is your reparations, you know? And like, they were like, you know, you let your parents, ha- they, they are intelligent ass people and know I'm to get on the bus every day, they could go to the library, right? And they had those options and they were like, you can't control them, but you created this whole life for yourself. And I just am sticking it's complicated, but I'm like, I'm sticking with that. You know? Yeah. Someone in the back. I
4: don't know what old are you. able to come forward? Thanks. Can we ask me? Hi, I'm opulence Hi. <laughs> um I'm and uh the more i'm
3: in
1: tj processes i okay let me let me back up i have good boundaries i practice bound all the things right boundaries um i am not new to boundaries <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in
3: tj processes i feel like i'm going from like addition subtraction to like calculus and i just feel like <laughs> 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 My boundaries are not <laughs> enough, and I don't understand them, and it's, it's painful right now, which is why I want to ask you for your boundary tips, especially in these processes where we care so much.
2: So I've been doing this shit for 20 years and I had no boundaries for most of it. I was just like, I had been really alone as a young survivor and really, really alone and abandoned by community. So then I started getting these messages at three in the morning from people being like, I heard you had a situation, can we talk? I never said no to anybody. I never said no one time. And because of the way the movement was, it was all like, you've got to hold these stories to yourself. And I was like, yeah, right, confidentiality. And then I started to lose it. You know, and I learned a lot from disability justice around it's not selfish or entitled to be like, I actually have to stop right now. You know, and it's not, I don't have it all figured out, but I would say I learned by fucking it up and I learned by going over my boundaries, right? By going way past my stop sign. So what I try and do now is write, is like write them down in advance when possible. Like what are the things that are hard? Like what are the things I can only do on my best day, my most resourced day? And I think, you know, if I was gonna start a process now, I'd want us all to talk about our boundaries at the beginning, and for me, it's stuff that felt like illegal to say for a while. Like, I'm like, I don't, I might not answer the phone all the time i 'm going to take vacation, um, and I've learned a lot from disability justice with like care circles I'm in right now, where we have one person who's on deck to coordinate communications and check in with a person who needs care, and then they have a backup for when if then one person is like i'm sick i 'm having a panic attack i can 't do it um And, you know, for a long time, it felt like there were three of us in the whole world doing this shit. So a backup was impossible. But I am hopeful that, like, as that's one thing that we can practice and that maybe if someone's like, I can't be the lead anything. But I'm like, they're like, yeah, I can be the backup. I can be the understudy sounds weird. But, like, you know, I can do a little bit. I think that helps a lot. Um, And, like, I have salt all over my house. I have, you know, I do a lot I, I was really in the broom closet about my spiritual practice, and then I realized that actually just praying to spirit and being like, please help me the fuck out and please put a stop sign on this, you know, or help me see the way to put a stop sign really, really helped. I also do a lot of salt water baths and cleansing to be like, get this off of me, and that helps me just even know when my boundaries are. Because as a survivor, it's easy for me to be like, What boundaries? I'll just do whatever. That's how I'm loved. And Um, My friend Erin Ambrose has this thing she says where she's like, as working class femmes so often, we survive by making ourselves um, irreplaceable, right? Like we're just always there. And so I think naming that, I mean like that's been a survival strategy and honoring that and then being like, and what do we do to also be as loved? And we're like, hey, I love you and I can't right now, here's two other people. Or can you go read a book or something? You know, or sorry, that sounded harsh, but like I mean it. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for that question.
3: So, so if I'm honest, I didn't learn my boundaries from uh, transformative justice work. I learned my boundaries from survivor support work um, because of the volume that I was working on. So I worked on direct incidents of violence for about a 10-year period. And I think I've worked on hundreds of incidents and many severe forms of violence. So I I definitely learn, like, sometimes I don't know if it's the difference between boundaries and planning but for me, there were pieces around, <laughs> like, so then I learned, like, to say up front, here's what I work on and here's what I can't. And here's when I can work on things and whatnot, right? Um, so so that, was, that was part of it. I also learned that some of the reasons why I was having trouble uh, taking breaks was that I didn't have other people that I felt had the same skill set to give people to call on. So then I was actually then engaged, so then it would be either be like, I was worried that somebody wouldn't notice a trauma reaction. I was worried that somebody, knew, like, I, I was just worried about how things were held, so it became this whole, like, only I can do it, only I can do it. And then, then I was like, okay, well, how do I support other people in building this up? Mm-hmm. I I had an issue where, for four years when I was at the Audre Lord Project, I'd my vacations were interrupted so that I stopped taking vacations because I was just like something happens and then there's like something messy and then I come back to like a really, really angry survivor <laughs> and I would rather I would rather do it right from the front end <laughs> and not take breaks, right? And so that wasn't a good idea. And so eventually <laughs> people were like, as opposed to not taking breaks, <laughs> what if we sit down and talk about what you do? And like what... Um, because I wasn't trained to do survivor support in like a very like one two three way it was like I learned talking to a lot of people and learned by doing there wasn't a handbook you know those types of things but then we started to just write things down <laughs> and write a handbook because there's no, there are for people who direct support in terms of uh like services there are more resources but I was doing it as an organizer right and so here are the organizing pieces so I think some of it is also the writing down. And then I just got real simple. I need to sleep seven to eight hours. I need to drink <laughs> like seven glasses of water. I need at least two of the three meals, right? And the other boundary, which I don't know if it's healthy or not, I reduce dr- dramatic people in my life. So I cannot have a lot of extra drama going on, <laughs> right? Like I have... A gift, blessing, curse of doing this work and doing this work well, and part of that commitment is that I let people know, I was like, so, yeah, all this, all this in my text messages, we're not doing this. <laughs> right? We're, <laughs> we're not doing this. Like, you're taking me out of my gifts. <laughs> like, and, um, and I feel committed to what I, what I do, and I feel committed to my people. And so, and I'm gonna, <laughs> and, and therefore, and, and I would say the last part is I surrounded myself with people who know this life, and know this work, so they also know, because I can perform well. Yeah. I look better, than, like I can perform well and then go hide in the corner and y'all won't know. Yeah. But right. they'll know. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, it's also about like surrounding yourself with people who get it, who will call you on it, who will say like, you know, I see this coffee to water ratio. <laughs> <laughs> I I, I I see it <laughs> changing a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to call you in on that. When you had half a Lara bar. <laughs> when I yeah, when I had <laughs> half of a Lara bar and I called it food. Um <laughs> So I think um and I got okay with having some imbalanced personal relationships. Like I have some friends who don't do this work yeah. who were really okay with like It doesn't have to be this thing where like, you cook me a meal and I cook you a meal, right? They're like, my life looks different. The work I do is different. And I want you to rest. So come over on Friday nights and there'll be food for you. And that's how we'll hang out. Mm -hmm. And I don't want you to feel guilty about that. And so I think it's also about like, I would say it's community, it's people. Um, and it's learning everybody has different things that they need in that daily, weekly, monthly assortment, so I think there's also a piece around self-knowledge, like what do you need Mm -hmm. to do this well?
4: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't want to add much other than to be... Um, grateful that you already have boundaries since a lot of us learn them. Th- I mean, maybe, you know, you, but we learn them through trying so hard and then getting, you know, messed up and then trying to, again. So I feel it's great that somebody's like, I know boundaries. So the only other thing is that when it feels like calculus, and the reason for it being calculus is outside of us, like it's because of these larger systems and all the chaos in the world. Da da da. da. Then it's I, it's easy for me to be like, okay, then that's something I don't have control over. So if I'm getting, mo- if I'm getting more upset because of that stuff, I need to just like realize that that's still happening. I'm doing my part to stop the chaos, but that is going to continue without me. So just sort of separating from the stuff that's not yours to control. And once I do that, then I'm like, oh, if the reason that feels like calculus and I feel like I'm drowning in this thing, it's probably because I'm keeping it secret. You know, I'm not telling anybody that I'm suffering. I'm thinking I'm I'm so self-sufficient, I have to be the one to do it. I'm doing, I'm replicating some of the things that are involved in violence. In myself, while I'm trying to end it in this particular situation, okay, so that's like that self-knowledge, the hard self-knowledge, where it's like, oh shoot, I'm replicating that again. I kept it secret, I kept it inside, I kept it from other people, so now let me share with somebody else because my sense of self-sufficiency, again, was just a survival strategy. It's, it's, a, it's a lie, <laughs> you know? Um, and so that's usually what's helpful. Like, where is that calculus coming from? Where's that feeling of so, it's so complicated coming from? Is it external to me? Is it internal to me? And what complexity do I choose? You know, when you're in TJ um, uh, in interventions, it's like, it is complex. I chose to come into this, you know? So I'm choosing this complexity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it with somebody else and I'm gonna be able to understand where the complexity is coming from.
1: Thank you all for sharing and thank you for all your great questions. That was the last question, thanks Opulence. Um, the one other boundary thing I have is also if you're supporting a survivor, and I got this from actually just managing, Like, it's easier to start with a, f- a boundary further away than it is to push it back. So like, starting with like less capacity, and anticipating, like, at the beginning of a process, I think we're like, I'm so excited, I can do all these things. If you pull back later, it's going to feel like you're leaving that person hanging, and I think that's where our guilt kicks in, and we're like, now I can't set boundaries because this person's relying on me. So if you start with, an, like, a little less than what you think your capacity is, or a lot less, because things are going to shift and change, and it's going to be harder than you think, it's easier to go from that and, be, and then reassess your capacity and be like, actually, I could do a little bit more than it is to be like, um, scale back or what happens too is people just drop out and that's like think about if you can't think about taking care of yourself think about taking care of the survivor like how much worse is it going to be if you keep pushing past your boundaries and then all of a sudden you just ghost them um, just to make it scary um, I'm going to invite us to take three more breaths and then I'm going to answer the last question the actual last question which is how can I get involved in Los Angeles but first again if you want to wiggle your butt or just put your feet on the ground get into a comfortable position. And then just breathe in, feel your lungs expand, breathe in all the love in this room, all the wisdom and knowledge. (laughs) And then breathe in that laughter and the joy that's also in this room. And then as you breathe out, you can let go of everything, you can make noise, you can let go of the boundaries you haven't set in the past. Just ah! All right, um, I know I talk fast, and I'm gonna go slow because it's an access issue, but I also wrote down what I'm reading, so if I'll put it on the book signing table, you can come take a photo of this. So, TJ events in Los Angeles. February 5th, first Wednesdays, there is a TJ practitioner circle at Shuko's Justice Center. Also, there are so many people in this room who do TJ in different spaces. I don't know if you all know each other. Also, you, a couple people got haircuts. You all look great. Um, So if I call out an event that you know about and you're comfortable raising your hand so that other people in the room can see you and ask you about it, that would be awesome because there's going to be a long book signing line. You might as well build community. So Chuco's Justice Center, first Wednesdays from 6 to 9 p.m. if you want to raise your hands. Higher, please, Jessica. Uh, There is a TJ practitioner circle. Six to seven, there is food. Seven to nine, we have conversation and or circle. The theme of the next one will be gender-based violence as well as some kidnappings that are happening in South LA. If you enjoyed tonight's facilitation, you can see me again there. Um, The mailing list I've written down in blue on this paper. February 14th, Survivor Love Letter was started by a queer Angelino named Tani Ikeda. It's an online social media campaign, so you can hashtag a love letter to a survivor on Valentine's Day with the hashtag Survivor Love Letter starting at 9 a.m. PST. February 19th, so also this is heavily Chukos based because this is where I practice. Um, So every third Wednesday, there's cat 911. So that stands for Community Alternatives to Calling 911. There's also another cat in where? Different neighborhoods. Well, I- There's cats everywhere <laughs> because cats reproduce quickly as our movements do. Um, so there are cats in different neighborhoods. If there isn't one in your neighborhood, you could start your own. Come to cat911 at Chuco's and plug in get resources. It also community, action. community action teams, too. It's cats, <laughs> so many lives and meanings. Um, On March 6th, there is Thinking Gender at UCLA. It is free and open to the public. Mimi Kim and Miriam Kaba, among others, will be on a keynote panel in the after, they're both in the book, Uh, it's in the after, I don't know, Google it, Um, Thinking Gender. Uh, March 7th to 8th at Shuko's, there's a TJ201. The training is full, but one of the asks that we're making of participants is that they share that knowledge forward. So there is also a tiny URL that Jessica just made on here. If you're interested in doing a 101 or a mid-level transformative justice training, we are sending folks who didn't get into the T01, 201 to that. And we, were, we will probably have another 101 that the folks that do the 201 will lead because each one, each one. Um, and then March 7th, no, I just said that. March 9th, I'm naming this, it's also closed, but there is another training happening with Miriam Kaba. and the reason I'm naming that these trainings are happening is I think a lot of times we practice in silos, and I want folks to know these trainings are happening so there are people in our communities that have these resources. I will be going to that training. I'm happy to talk, I mean, not to all of you at once, because boundaries. Um, And then March 13th to 15th, Just Practice. I think those authors are also in this book. Miriam and Shura Hassan are doing a three-day in Seattle. Get your org or someone to pay for you to go there. And then the last thing I'm going to say is the other place that we really practice transformative justice is where we have relationships. So if you have an existing community group or support, like... Start a reading group. I know that Jessica and Navor today were like, we want to get to the bookstore at 4.30 so we can make sure that we get in. So they were just like, we'll just meet in the park before and talk about the book and have a discussion group. And they also organized together, right? And it's super tender. It's cute. You can share snacks. Um... I, like Another example I love to give is Koreatown for All in my neighborhood started as folks who were just mad about anti-shelter protests in our neighborhood and they taught themselves how to organize. Now they do policy work, they're doing cop watch, they're resisting sweeps of homeless people. Like These are all ways that we practice not calling the police or intervening on the ways that the state inflicts violence on our neighbors. Um, Rapid response networks are happening in a lot of neighborhoods. Those are primarily ice defense. But this is also another way that people are building skills, learning de-escalation, and building relationships on a community level. Like, especially in Los Angeles, think about it. Like some of your best friends, like if they live on the west side and they're experiencing violence, what are you gonna do? Like be like, I'm coming, I'll be there in four hours. We need to build, we need to build in our neighborhoods. Like we need to talk to our neighbors and be like, something's happening on my block. Like I can get there. That is where we like make Change happen and like start building relationships across identities so that we like the people that we see every day and recognize know to look out for each other. Um cop watch, black and pink LA, there's critical resistance, stop LAPD spying, no Olympics, because the Olympics are gonna cause so much more violence in the city. Um yeah, and reading groups. Cool.
2: Audrey, yeah. Can we get that from you and put it on the Facebook event so people can you yes. know, pull this? My beautiful handwriting? Yes. Yeah,
1: well, yeah. Yes. Um, yes, cool, yes, okay, so this will also be on the Facebook event um, and yeah, yes, Amitha is taking a picture right now, so thank you, yeah, they are also here to build, please remember there are people, even though they're celebrities and beautiful, don't be weird, um, I mean, like be weird, like be neurotypical, but don't be creepy um. There will be a signing. Um, There's going to be a line, but we'll try to put some chairs in it so that folks aren't just standing. And again, remember that there are other folks in this room who are interested in practicing TJ. This is a really, like, there are such dope people in this room. Please meet someone new.
0: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.